Hi, I'm Emily Bellet, the founder of Vespot.com, a thriving community that financially empowers women and author of the Amazon bestseller, You're Not Broke, You're Pre-Rich. And this is The Wallet. The Wallet is here to help you make better financial decisions by talking honestly about money. I'll be sharing my best tips, inspiring you to take charge of your financial futures and talking to an array of awesome guests from all walks of life, employees, freelancers, entrepreneurs, and money experts. While the lack of diversity in the financial industry has been well documented, it's still shocking to hear that, according to Morningstar, there are more funds run by men named David than there are female fund managers in total. This is despite research by The Pipeline showing that diverse teams and firms with more female executives actually perform better. So why is the financial industry lacking in diversity and what effect is this having on people who want to invest their money? My guest today is Bev Shah, founder of City Hive, a network that champions equality and inclusive culture within the investment sector. With 15 years of experience in the city, Bev is passionate about increasing cognitive, cultural, racial, and gender diversity in the financial industry to ensure it becomes both more accessible and also future-proof. Together, we look at the barriers women face in finance, the wealth and gender pension gaps, as well as the benefits that will come from creating a more diverse and open industry. Bev talks about recognizing the power you have when investing money and how to get started and shares her tips for navigating and understanding the industry. I also wanted to let you know that we are not financial advisors. So the articles, the information made available on Vespot.com and in this podcast are provided just for educational purposes and do not constitute financial advice. So make sure you consult with an independent financial advisor for advice on your specific circumstances. Hi, Bev. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. How are you today? I'm, I'm well. It's Friday and, you know, I'm all set for the weekend because I have so many plans in lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to decide what pajamas to wear, which cocktail to make <laughs> and which movie to watch with the kids. So, yeah, I'm really well. <laughs> Yeah, I really wanted to have you on, on the podcast. We've been, you know, talking for a few years. You came to our Vespod events. And I wanted to talk about diversity in financial services because my mission is really to help women get started, get invested. But there's so many barriers and, and challenges. And I feel, and you know the industry really well, and we'll talk about maybe your background and then what's not working today and what we're trying to change. But I want to show women that, you know, finance is for them and there are opportunities and they are uh, they can have equal opportunities, but I think it's not always the case. So maybe, you know, we'll take a step back and, and you can tell our listeners, you know, who you are and where you come from, because you have a very interesting background. I've been in the industry for roughly 20 years. Um, I was fairly, I always have fell into. I started in the industry as an intern at, at Lehman Brothers, actually, and yeah, then okay. at Bear Stearns. And I have no idea how, how I managed that because I was never an A-grade student. You know, I'm a coaster. I was kind of two Bs and a C at A-levels. So it was always kind of like, well, there's no way when you kind of, and next to a lot of the people who back then were joining the city from Oxbridge and the LSC that I was ever going to get in. And the internship at, at Lehman Brothers was at um, in the operations department. And I think it was fairly new. So I was kind of a, a lot of luck. It was like they just launched it. No one knew about it. And I just happened to have stumbled on it. And that's how I kind of arrived there and went through the whole testing process. And actually, I'm dyslexic. So it turns out apparently I completely failed the... English reasoning <laughs> test but the math test I'd kind of aced and then I had an interview with a man called Stephen Hodges who basically okayed me to be on the intern program and after the the intern program ended they'd asked me to stay on for a few weeks because on day one after work shadowing someone for a day I basically just said I can't spend eight weeks work shadowing, give me a job. And they gave me the guilt test to look after. So I was doing a proper job over this internship and then they let me stay on. And Stephen, at the end of it, took me out for lunch 
because I think he was meant to be my mentor. I basically said to him, like, why did you give me the job? Because he, he'd taken me out to lunch to kind of say to me that I should spell check my CV and cover letter better because there was like spelling mistakes. And I was like, oh, I'm dyslexic. And, and he, he said, you, out of all the candidates, came across as someone who would die trying. And I was just like, okay, I don't know if that's a compliment. And then from there, that was a springboard because I had something on my CV, a, a brand name that then when my CV arrived at Bear Stearns, that was interesting for them because it had Lehman's on it. And then I got a grad job at Bear Stearns. And thankfully that didn't last very long. So I was on the grad scheme and, on, uh, and I had a trading role. I was, I was trading European equities. And I think for a lot of people who are at university who have an aim to go into the city, it's generally that sort of role. And I realized very quickly, it was almost like you've climbed this mountain and I was like, you know, helicoptered in at the top, but there was no view. For me personally, I found it very unchallenging. It was stressful, but it wasn't the right fit for me. I was also an Indian girl who'd gone to a kind of a, a private school walking onto a trading floor full of white men who came from a very different background to me and I just didn't feel like I belonged there. Thankfully I was made redundant which taught me some very big lessons in early on in my career but also it meant that I was then able to ex explore other other industries within the city which I'd never even considered and that was investment management and with investment management what I found was and that encompasses the whole kind of realm of wealth managers and asset managers, you know, that whole sphere of people who manage portfolios. I found a, an industry where I was able to, I don't want to say analyze things and think about things and use my brain and have, you know, add some value. So I fell into investment management and then I basically went down the road of analyzing funds. So in my career, I've probably interviewed and assessed thousands if not tens of thousands of investment products and funds and because of the companies I worked for my last role was at Aviva because of the numbers we're talking about and the amount you know we're talking about billions of assets under management you also get access all areas within the ecosystem of the industry so you know the top sales people want to talk to you you get to go and meet the CEOs of companies so it was really great and you also get to really really think about things and one of the things that I realized when I was um, analyzing funds and and looking at teams was the one thing that is really lacking within the industry is cognitive diversity. There's obviously representative diversity that is missing as well there aren't very many women or ethnic minorities in the decision-making roles. And I, I know there's other forms of diversity, but the only visible ones are really your ethnicity and whether you've, you know, a person of color, whether you're a woman or whether you've got a physical disability, other kind of diversity traits are often visible. You know, everyone seemed to be more or less at least a man or a white man. And then you kind of, you know, which got me thinking because I know I've mentioned I'm dyslexic, I've always, my brain, I'm neurodiverse, you know, as well as being an Indian woman, I kind of think differently. And I think that's what made me a good analyst. And I was always like, you know, we, we ask people and we ask fund managers to diversify. You know, we even talk to regular investors and customers about diversifying your portfolio, right? We talk about don't just have a house as your asset, have a pension, have a savings pot, spread your money. And yet we don't spread, you know, the types of people we're investing with. We kind of, we're happy to kind of manage our assets and including in the city, there's a lot of talk about diversification through currencies, you know, all the risks are sliced and diced apart from the demographics of the people who actually make the decisions. And that to me just doesn't sit right. And then you obviously go into the idea that it doesn't even look diverse and, you know, cognitive diversity it's not measurable. You know, you can't go up to someone and say how it's, it, are you cognitively diverse? Are you, it's about putting a team of people together who think differently and, you know, iteratively figure it out. It's not a formula. And unfortunately the city loves a formula. So if it doesn't fit into a box, you know, it's not going to happen. It's a creative thing. It's a moving organism that you need to kind of work on. So that's, that was one element of why I set up City Hive as a organization to actually challenge and hold the companies in the industry to account 
for meeting their sustainable responsibilities to do with diversity, inclusion and equality. A lot of these companies talk about their ESG, you know, being in the heart of what they do in their DNA. Everything we do is about sustainability. And then you look at their own organization or they'll talk about what they're doing to hold the companies they invest in to account, which is great through shareholder action. The investment industry can move the world, right? They can decide on what topics are important and what aren't. They can move boards to behave in certain ways. But then you hold a mirror up and you go, yeah, but your organization looks like this. <laughs> and what are you doing? So we, we at City I want to be able to help firms in the industry meet their responsibilities and hold them to account. And then we have a network side of our organization, which is really about giving the people, everybody in the industry a voice, not just diverse people, but actually also the white male, who's often left out of the conversation now about diversity. And the only way you're going to get different types of clients, so getting more women to invest, different thought processes in, like that cognitive diversity, is by adding more diverse people into the industry who are making decisions. Female fund managers, I think, have, for the last 20 years, tracked at roughly 14%, I think, of the industry as female fund managers. There are more fund managers called Dave than there are women. Yeah, I was about to say that. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. And that's not changed. No, that's, that hasn't changed. Can you just tell us, you know, what is the role, the exact role of the fund manager for people who actually want to invest in fund and why is it important that, you know, if you go for active funds, you understand who's investing your, your money? So a fund manager is the investment professional who will be managing the actual portfolio of stocks and the general public or the regular person who doesn't know about investing you can make the decision and often a lot of investment products now you have to invest in funds it's not you can't just invest in the stock itself the fund manager is the person who will manage that within a within parameters that have been set ahead so for example you could go and buy a fund that is investing only in the uk stock market there will be parameters around it and what an active manager will do is they will be looking at each of those companies and deciding how much risk and how, what's the bet they want to make on that company. So you could, for instance, you might hear terms like concentrated portfolio, which basically means that if it's a concentrated portfolio of FTSE all share stocks, and they might just have 60 companies with from the, the lots of companies that are within the FTSE all share, those fund managers are not only researching, but they often have access to that company management. They have a lot of information at hand that is available publicly, but they also have the skills to be able to understand the accounts, how different things in the news are going to affect them. If those companies, for example, have complicated debt structures, which again, you're not going to really know unless you have a clear understanding of how to read a company accounts. That fund manager would be aware that if For example, the US election changes, what's that impact going to be on that company? If the ECB, the European Central Bank, changes their rates, what's that impact going to be on that product? So that's why having a fund manager and understanding how their team works, what their background is, is really important because you need to trust that person. They are the one making the decision. And as much as they have a lot of data and spreadsheets, at the end of the day, like anyone making a decision, You are relying on their judgment and their subjective experiences. And, you know, there are some very, very bright people within the industry who really care about people who have invested with them. Yeah. The city overall often gets a bad rap. And I've always felt slightly uneasy when people think that every industry within the city is, is, is the same. Yeah. Finance and banking to me, has nothing to do with investment management. If you put your money in the bank and it's sitting in cash, that's a bank. If you invest your pension or your ISA, that's the investment management industry. Those are two different skill sets. Those are companies that operate in very different ways. And unfortunately, and, and, and you know this as well as I, that post 08 and the credit crunch, that kind of gave a blanket bad feeling 
appealing to a lot of people about the city in general. Everyone turned into a dirty banker. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I remember, and you probably remember the same, you're kind of justifying to people, to friends who aren't from the city, that you're not a banker. Like I was always like, I'm not a banker. I'm an investment manager. I analyze yeah. investments. I don't, you know, I'm, I don't work for a bank. I had nothing to do with credit. Like I didn't, you know, that's not my bit. I actually held fund managers to account over the, um, the amount of credit they might have been investing in. And what's interesting is um, Post 08 and The Big Short, written by Michael Lewis. You know, you don't have to even go and read the book, watch the film. And when I watch that, I kind of smile because when you when you watch the movie, which again, I'd say watch the movie over, over reading the book. <laughs> it's very heavy to go through. The people who called the credit crunch were the diverse thinkers. The people who didn't fit the mold, you see a couple of case studies through the film. You see the the hedge fund guy who people were like, you know, he was nearly bust until, he, but he was saying, this is what's happening. You see the young kids who saw it happening, but people rejected, you know, what they were saying. That is what cognitive diversity is, is having people in the room who spot the blind spot, who actually aren't all kind of filled with confirmation bias, aren't all kind of, you know, all looking in one direction. You need someone who's looking in the other direction and goes, hold on a second, guys, have you thought about this? And that's what cognitive diversity really is. And if we bring more people into the industry who look different and have different life experiences, whether it's socioeconomic differences, whether it's educational, whether it's, you know, whether you're an ethnic minority or your culture or your gender or your sexuality or your abilities or your disabilities you will then have a cohort of people who will all be looking in different directions and you'll have more robust decision making which hopefully should lead to better performance yeah and should hopefully also lead to more people wanting to join the industry more women wanting to join the industry yeah so these are, are really the two things i want to talk about just now is Women. So, you know, there's so, I, I think there's so many challenges for female fund managers, maybe in the way, you know, you know, track record is, is calculated. I've heard like so many stories, even recently of, you know, women were, you know, left for maternity leave or just had a baby, came back, their job just disappeared. This is really awful. So that happened to me, you know, we keep making the same mistakes and we all get used to it. You kind of almost expect it, right? I remember I used to think it was the rules of the game. If that's just it. But what's interesting is now people are starting to find their voice and are challenging the organizations, challenging the norms that was set probably in the 1920s, this idea that it's a male workplace and female biology doesn't sit in this. You know, no longer can we kind of be stay at home, you know, to have a mortgage nowadays, both people need to work. It's not the 1950s anymore. We educate our girls, we ourselves got educated and then someone forgot to tell us. So by the way, you can get educated and you can start a job But don't forget, when you have babies, you need to look after them. Because guess what? There isn't a magic switch. Like when I had children, I thought there was a magic switch that would happen where all of a sudden I'd have the kids and then I'd want to hang out with them all the time and play with them. I mean, I love my kids. Don't get me wrong. I love like watching a movie with them and eating popcorn. But I find it very boring playing with kids. You know? I don't know what to do with them. And I think this idea that you're, you know, every woman is going to want to be an earth mother or something. And the debate is also, it's always been about people inferring that that's what you want to do. And what we need to change is that actually the opportunity is that if you want to do that, go and do that. But if you don't want to, don't be penalized for it. And that's where things aren't really, you know, in balance within the industry and to change things, which, which is happening. There needs to be education there needs to be a lot of awareness raising around the experiences that people are having. And we need men to sit up and realize and look around them and go, well, actually, this isn't normal. They should be questioning, why am I sat in a room where actually it's all men? And, yeah. you know, the woman that was here has actually, she left. Why? why? Yeah, because otherwise, you know, the industry actually isn't really future-proofing itself, even in terms of attracting the best male talent. Because why would you want to join an industry like that? You'd go and work for tech or something a little bit sexier, right? Yeah. 
no, exactly. Thank you, Bev. I wanted to to talk about, I mean, and, and we started to talk about that offline, the gender pay gap, the gender wealth gap. So just, I mean, again, I'm, in each of these episodes, I talk about the gender pension gap and, you know, it's about 40%. So on average, women would retire on a, with a private pension pot of about 50K. I mean, there's different statistics compared to men who tend to have 150K. So this is like a massive difference. There's so many issues around pensions. Where do we even start? I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking and it's disappointing that every time anyone looks at any sort of gender gap when it comes to wealth or pensions. Whenever anyone looks at it or any study that I've, I've picked up, it's always been putting the blame on women. Oh, women decide to take career breaks. Women decide to have babies. Women decide to do this, that and the other. You know, women, women, women. And it's negotiating their salaries. Uh, they're not and it's more. like... Yeah. And I always feel like it's really difficult to change human behavior. It's really difficult to kind of go, women, 51% of the population, you do this thing. Because biologically, we can't change who we are. And what we can change a little bit more easily is the system. The system is way easier to change. I always feel like I'm not interested partly in hearing about what's wrong with women, because there's nothing wrong with women. And let's stick with mothers for this point, because, but I don't by any long talk think this is just applies to mothers. I think this applies to all women, but often women get tarred with the same brush. It's the risk that you might become a mother that that can impact you as well. It's that idea that there is some often the household responsibilities end up on your shoulders. The worrying about, you know, or putting money aside for school shoes or, you know, you forego your own financial health for other things that are needed now, because those things are on your list of responsibilities. And we can have the debate about how society sees men and women, and actually it should be a joint household. But when there is a gender pay gap, when there is also the problem of equal pay, that as much as it's legislated for equal pay, we all know men and women who do the same jobs are often not paid the same. I'm sorry, we might legislate for it, but there is no way of checking that. So therefore, I don't believe it. In Iceland now, you have to actually check. You have to prove you're paying the women the same as the men, which is great, but there is no way of checking it. So if you have that situation in the household, in a, in a conventional, regular household, where uh, the man, you know, me and my husband, for example, we both started same trajectory of career, pretty sure I was earning more than him at the start but I had all the hurdles put in front of me I didn't get all the promotions I didn't get all the pay rises I didn't have the career break and therefore the opportunity cost for him of taking on some of those roles taking on those decision making things that all impacts women and it means that we are facing retirement where it's going to be painful and that's when the government will step in with an inquiry. And then I personally believe this sits at the feet of the investment management industry. I don't think this is about women. I think this is about looking at the investment supply chain from the regulators and the DWP, the Department of Work and Pensions, and saying, what are the things that we have done that have led to women not investing? How do we make women see their financial future as important as saving for the, for the dishwasher to be repaired or whatever it is that we kind of put money aside for? How do we make that as important? So one example is the Financial Conduct Authority has their investment handbook um, that, that guides um, the industry on how they should treat customers customer is he the whole way through that book right so you might think that's quite innocuous you might think well that doesn't matter we all know he is the general term for humans well it does matter because unconsciously that has impacted how people have seen who should be investing it's he it's an industry for he and we do see that across society you know you may be aware that 
the crash test dummies and the anatomy of crash test dummies is actually based on your average man. And therefore, if you are in a car accident, even with the airbags, as a woman, I, I think the stat is something like you're 50% more likely to get injured. It might be less, but there is still a huge, I'm definitely more than 30, between 30 and 50% likely to get injured. Same is for medicines. Medical dosing is based on male anatomy. As a woman, you're being prescribed something that actually no one has ever bothered to test on on women. So this goes along society. And we we at City I've actually planned to do a study looking at the supply chain, not of women, what's wrong with women and how do you engage with women, but actually what should regulators be doing? What should asset managers be doing? The people who actually have the funds. My hypothesis is that they should be creating products which are based on data that involves women often what happens is if you go and buy an investment product that it's a little bit more complex so maybe as a person it's easier to buy because it's kind of an off-the-shelf product that you know you know what the end thing is often the assumptions that created that product came from data that's all based on men about men's lives men's earnings men's actuarial tables we want to challenge and look at What's the marketing terminology and the, and the language used? You know, how often do you see the little green shoot that grows into an acorn? Have we become desensitized to that idea? You know, I know, and you know what that means. That means compounding. You grow something, it's going to grow into a great oak tree. Let's look at the words we use around selling to women. You know, if you're always going to the same ad agencies, you're always briefing them in the same way, and those teams aren't diverse, then how are you going to get to a campaign that that actually speaks to women? What we have seen, which is really positive, is that even though apparently women don't like to take risks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, I know. You can see my face. Calculated risks. Calculated risks. (laughs) Even though what we do like to invest in is things that have social impact. And that's why I think where women have a lot of power is, is being able to invest where they know that the company is investing in things that are doing the right thing, but also they should be challenging the investment management company. Like going back to the thing I said earlier, yes, it's great the work you're doing, but what are you doing? Hold a mirror up to say, what are you doing? And it's been really pleasing to see that there are more platforms and more initiatives going live, like your podcast and and all the education you do to support and help women you have other platforms going out like the big exchange we're doing great work to ensure that the due diligence is done so when you go to it you can see who's doing the right thing but that's so much uh, i mean there's also so much greenwashing so for women who now want to invest in line with their values but you know a bit scared or, or to, to just get started investing money that's a lot to take on, you know, like I think that's why your you... value is it the first step or actually is it investing in stock with a platform that's going to be uh, super, super friendly. And then how do I know these funds are really green or ethical or, you know, I think that's where it can be a challenge if you're an individual person trying to look at this and don't have the access or the knowledge. However, at least if you go with understanding who is doing the research for you. I mean, I mean, I pick on the big exchange again, you know, because that's what they're doing. And they're looking at which funds, I'm not going to say the firms they back, because not all of them are massively doing the right thing. But also it's understanding the direction of travel of companies. We've got to where we've got to because no one's ever looked at it. You know, the city in the 80s is a very different place now, right? <laughs> very different. You know, we are talking about Pure commercialism, pure f- freak trade, the images of the Wolf of Wall Street. The movies, <laughs> yes. I mean, that was the pure 80s, right? Yeah. That's changed a lot, massively. And investment management in particular, I don't think was ever really like that. Obviously, that's a portrayal of the of the broking world and, and hedge funds is now, you know, you, you, I try not to watch, but you watch things on popular culture, like, you know, on television, like the billions, and you think, God, is that how my money is managed? The only way you can actually make money is of someone inside a trade. It's understanding that, you know, that's not actually how it is. There is someone probably fairly geeky sat there 
looking at this stuff. And actually, in my experience, a lot of the people in the industry actually care. They actually want to see things happen. The greenwashing is happening and there are little tricks that are being used. For example, if a fund all of a sudden changes its name, you know, and you can actually easily look this sort of thing up. You know, if it went from being UK equities one day to sustainable UK equities the next day, you got to kind of question, when did that happen? <laughs> you know, especially if a fund manager has been running it for so long. But then on the flip side, I had a conversation this week with a firm who have been ethical, sustainable investing for 30 years. It's been at the heart of what they do, not just in a product, but across every product. And they said it's really difficult for them to demonstrate this because there are people who've just started doing it who are able to say, we've started doing this thing. And they're like, but we've always done it. How do we tell people we've always done it? So it is tricky, but you can ask questions, you know, just because you you could hold just one unit of that fund and you have a right to ask questions. Yeah, It's a bit like shareholder meetings, actually, which are quite interesting. Often with shareholder meetings, you'll have the kind of the big shareholders, you know, who from the pension funds and wherever, institutional investors. And then you might have the little old granny in the corner who owns 10 shares and actually stands up and asks just as challenging questions. And from investor relation people, friends I have in the industry, you know, those are the people who actually hold a lot of companies to account. So you have power when you invest anywhere. And as an investor in a fund, you have the power to ask. Yeah, and you're, you're the client, it's your money. It doesn't matter if it's £10 or, or £10 million. You are the client and asking the question means that it's their responsibility, it's their fiduciary responsibility to answer you. So what change would you like to see in terms of, of diversity? And just to come back on, on diversity, so there's so many research that show that now firms who are diverse are actually performing better. So it's not just cosmetic, it just has an impact on you know financial returns of the company. And so this is really important. So the biggest change that needs to happen to really authentically have greater diversity that, that sticks is the corporate culture change that once you bring people in, you retain them. There's a lot of talk about bringing diverse talent in through the school gate and grad schemes. And, you know, a lot of grad schemes in the city have been 50-50 male-female for a very long time, yeah, a decade. I've started, yeah, 50-50. Yeah. I remember at Lehman Brothers, but after but then five you years, just completely, for, the, for the women. That bit hasn't changed, that corporate culture. So that link that you say about, you know, more diverse firms doing better, they do. and And it's almost like a causal thing. It's not just because there's more women or ethnic minorities. It's because you obviously have more cognitive diversity, so everything improves. But also that company has recognized that they need to culturally change and therefore everyone is thriving and flourishing together. And that's the key. I think organizations who are just tick boxing putting, I don't know, sponsoring the odd event or buying an awards dinner table and or whatever else is they're doing, they will get caught out. You know, their gender pay gap numbers won't change. In the industry, they their number of, you know, um, diverse fund managers won't change. They will get caught and they'll be left behind. And actually, I think what they'll do is they'll struggle to attract good talent because people want to work in nice companies who have policies in place that you know make them feel like not only that they belong but all the things that make you productive and feel like you'd have ownership and you can you know where someone isn't always looking over your shoulder that's what they want and they'll move they'll move to those organizations and you will be left behind so the one thing I want to see change is this recognition that it's your entire corporate culture that needs to change this is not a case of setting up a women's network or an ERG group and saying, I'm done. It's not a case of hiring the odd senior woman or as the face of your company. That's not going to work either. This is much more ingrained. And if we get it right, then we will not only future-proof the industry, but we will be then servicing and, and, and serving the customers we should be, which is basically everybody. I had a conversation with someone the other day about fund boards and investment trust boards. And they said, oh, well, we think they should represent their customer base. Like as it, you know, it's, I don't know, 80% men or whatever. And I just said to them, yes, but the customer base should represent the entire nation. So actually, 
you aren't doing your job if you aren't trying to target absolutely everyone yeah and also it's for i think for women like having a career in in finance is actually amazing and it's it's a really good way to you know achieve financial independence potentially sooner have more money into your pension have more money invested and then you know helping women but i think financially it, it, it can make a huge difference also having more women working in the industry yeah i think so and i think I mean, I found in my career, uh, I was I was lucky to be able to spend a lot of time just being allowed to like think about things, you know, and a good analysis is that going away, thinking about things, you know, finding your inspiration and coming back and saying, well, this is how it fits together. It's not sat at your screen <laughs> working numbers. That's not what analysis is. That's gathering evidence. There's also and, a bit of that, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a, but, but that, that's the problem because you end up with the same sorts of people. And this isn't just a demographic thing. This is also to do with cognition. You end up with, you know, when you hire people, you do have biases. We we trust people who look like us. There's an affinity bias going on. We kind of go, well, you know, my risk of hiring that person that looks like me from is my lower. From, you know, same background. Yeah. You know, I can do the job so they must be able to. There's a lower risk in that. I almost feel like you should be hiring people who make you nervous. So yeah, and risk is like in- yeah, I agree with you. And risk, like in investing, is, is maybe an opportunity for you, you know, to change. And We've got to the point in the industry where everything is about certain types of qualification, which only certain types of people can get. Yeah. Um, you know, I've said it several times in, this, in, in, our, in our chat. I'm dyslexic. And the older I've got, the more difficult it's got for me to do exams. Yeah. I'm all right with that. I've got my economics an accounting degree. I'm I'm totally all right. I did my exams that I needed to get when I entered the industry. But if someone said to me today, you need to go and do this chartered exam or, or this other exam, I wouldn't be able to do it. And what I feel it would it would lead to, we're, we're losing a lot of people who think differently, creative brains, people who don't devour books and aren't, you know, maybe have a kind of academic or, you know, routine led led personality. And that again means you're diluting the proposition you're diluting the decision making so we kind of need those checks and balances in place now of kind of getting people to really do analysis on their own decision making like what are my flaws in this like what are my biases in this particularly when you're actually going to hire people and then looking at actually what is it the thing that we need to do to support that person to make them better and more, more robust. Again, organizations pick and choose who they want on their leadership tracks, right? They kind of go, well, we're going to coach the hell out of that guy, but she, ah, don't bother about her. It's going to have babies we, next year. Exactly. We need to look at investing in our staff because I tell you what, I think I'm pretty sure it's a lot cheaper to invest in a, a person who's in your organization already to give them back their confidence, give them the soft skills that no one teaches you, you know, that will keep them there for longer. You don't have to be on a leadership track. You'll be more impactful. We do need people to stay in the middle and do the day job, but be more impactful. Then having to recruit for that person. You know, the cost that goes into recruiting for a new person, having to embed them, all that stuff costs way more than actually investing a few thousand pounds in someone, whether it's through coaching, whether it's through mentoring, and not just picking the people who, I was calling them the cheerleaders, not the people you think need it, but actually it's often the people you don't think, you know, who you would just pass by. They're the ones that need it. Thank you so much. It's really interesting. I mean, how how can you make your organization more diverse? I think it works in lots of industries, but it's it's really shocking at the moment in the, you know, in the financial industry. So what are you working on at the moment with City Hive? What's like the top thing you'd like to change? So we are working on a corporate culture kite mark. We're going to make it easier for anybody to see. Like you asked me earlier, how do you assess whether an investment management company is doing the right thing in greenwashing? We are working on a corporate culture kite mark, which has six pillars that will look at the heart and soul of a company, which is extremely difficult to do even as an analyst, because often the only things you have are a glossy website and company accounts. With my background in funds research and and ratings and my chief strategist, Mandy Kirby, came from um, the leadership team at the UN-backed organization's Principles of Responsible Investing. She was responsible for the 
the global accounting framework that firms had to fill in to do with sustainable responsible investing. We both recognise that a lot of that external stuff that companies do, which is what's being tracked, actually no one's looking at the corporate culture. And that's what we want to do. We want to be able to show you that, yes, invest in that fund, but actually that company is also doing well here. And what we know is it's about it's more about direction of travel. What you, because no one's doing that well, let's be honest. You know, the gender pay gap in the industry and the number of women who manage money tells you everything you need to know, you know, about where we are. But it's about your intent, your authentic intent by senior management to actually tackle this. You and I both live through bull and bear markets in the city, and we know that often topics like diversity will be, I've heard people say to me, oh, that's a bull market thing. No one's going to care anymore. Well, actually, people do care. Corporate culture and the way you behave, it became very apparent, actually, in the early days of lockdown in March, that everybody cared. Mainstream media, you know, ran all those stories about firms that were sacking people overnight and all that stuff before furlough came in. You know, I think Rick Stein, Weatherspoons, and lots of people. I mean, Weatherspoons, you kind of expect it of them, but, but you saw that people, how you treat your staff, how you treat people has become very important. So we've got the Kite Mark, which we're very excited about. Our mentoring scheme, which we launched last year, July, last year, in July, we, we're rolling that out, hoping to, for, to go even bigger next year. So at the moment, the way the scheme works, it's open to female mentees in the industry, and then mentors can be anybody. Next year, the mentees we will support will be all women and ethnic minority men as well, because there's a there's a problem with that. And the scheme is slightly different to ordinary schemes, which your company would pay for your place in a scheme, for example. This is a sponsored scheme. What we're saying is companies should be cultivating the entire pipeline, the pool of talent that's there, their future talent, by just sponsoring the scheme and funding anyone who wants to be on it to be on it. So there are limited placing on the scheme, but we had last year, we didn't even have the applications open for that long. And we got six times as many mentee applicants as we had places. And the entire scheme has, you know, it starts with robust training, there's guidance, there's frameworks, there's check-ins. Because what we want to make sure is at the end of the scheme, which is nine months, the formal scheme, we want those people to walk away and have a lifelong mentor. And also the mentees to have the skill to pay it forward and be mentors to other people. That's the kind of the growing mushroom. So those are kind of two of the things. And then the kind of the third thing we're working on is the gender pension gap stuff as a proxy for the investment gap. But instead of looking at what's wrong with women again, <laughs> we're looking at actually what the industry can do down the pipeline from, like I said, the DWP and the FCA all the way down to platforms and advisors. That that's what we want to see. What are the what are the key action points that we need to do and actually I see see that as being a piece of work that will be ongoing and growing over the years because we need to start somewhere yeah um, I'm very interested to uh, you know to hear more about that and and you know if you you need anyone you know Vespod Vespod community we would be very happy to, uh, to we, we would love that we feel that you know if if by collaborating with the people that care like you, like various other organizations that do care about this, we can actually get something changing things. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Well done, Bev. I just want to finish with five quick fire questions, okay. uh, <laughs> a bit more personal, personal finances. Can I ask you what is your top financial goal at the moment? I'm going to say to be mortgage free. Yeah. That's my, and the reason I say that is I'm married to a man who works in the credit market and he is very anti having any sort of credit. <laughs> so our household goal has always been never have debt. Debt free. Debt free. What is the best financial decision you've ever made? There's been lots of highlights. Best sorts of investments actually are that long-term gain, yeah. stick it in funds and just let it go. And then don't, whatever you do, don't mess don't with it when, it. don't touch it, yeah. just leave it. I mean, in, because I've managed portfolios, 
Um, and my husband is is more of a kind of sh- on the banking side. We we kind of differ in our views, and he'll kind of he's more short term. It's more of a chartist. He'll say like, "Oh, market's going to drop tomorrow, whatever." And I'm like, "Leave it. We're not retiring for another twenty years, so we don't need to look at it." You know, that's that's the key. Don't stress about it, yeah. And also, I think you don't have to invest thousands. Put put five pounds in. Yeah, five pounds. Started. A month, maybe. Yeah, every month. Which is what we do for our children. We put a little bit in, we make sure their ISA is filled. And what's the worst financial decision you've made? The worst financial decision I think I've made is just wasting money on (laughs) consumer goods. I think I look at my wardrobe now from probably my pre my pre kids days and think about the money I spent on shoes and handbags and I it can actually makes me kind of feel physically sick in the stomach because I just think that all I've done is spent money on branding without realizing yeah. it I uh, you know the products aren't any better that would be probably my worst and now I'm older now eBay and sell everything I mean it's like now, time. <laughs> exactly but now I'm older and wiser I just kind of think to myself oh my god why didn't I know about pension gaps and yeah. you know why didn't why didn't I put more money in oh my god I'm gonna retire I'm like what like yeah I think I think it's that kind of spending money on the things I didn't need for the wrong reasons and I really wish I hadn't and invest instead yeah, I, re- I wish I'd put more money into that kind of when I had the opportunity to when my company was giving, you know, matching me and yeah. it's which in effect is free money. I should have. Same for me. And we were working in finance. So imagine the, you know, the rest of us. I mean, I remember I left one firm and because I hadn't been there for that long, I had the option to cash in my pension. And I did. And what did I do with it? I spent it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. luckily I was I was young and I can kind of put it down to that. but. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but thank you for sharing it. This is so useful uh, for people who are at the beginning of their journeys and, you know, are not too sure about putting money away for pension or for the long term. This is really important. It makes such a big difference. I would just say when you're looking at it, and I know one of the kind of obviously the mental barriers for anybody looking at thinking about their pension, particularly when you're young, is the fact that you have to think about, you know, getting old and dying and even if it's an unconscious thing no one wants to think about that right you don't want to think about it and you kind of think well maybe maybe I'll have an inheritance that will back me I mean you kind of have thoughts like that I would say think about what do you want when you retire like when you see I mean you know sometimes you see the holiday adverts like saga for older people and you just kind of think well if you want to retire early as most of us fantasize about doing and spending your life traveling and all the rest of it then you need to put money away now because if you can't afford the holiday now, you're not going to afford the five-star holiday you want when you're when you're 60 or whatever it is. So try and work backwards from the things that you want, talking about, I don't know, holiday homes or I want to have a house in the country or I want to live like this. Just think about those things and work back. Yeah. And then when you are in your 20s, I would say don't forego the things you want. I'm not saying when I say, like, I wish I hadn't bought those shoes. Up. Of course, buy a pair of shoes, but just think before whatever you're doing. You know, I I don't regret any of the experiences I had in my 20s and, no, and 30s. No. I, don't ex- I don't regret the holidays, the memories, the meals out. What I regret is the stuff actually doesn't mean anything that the advertisers want to, you know, like social media people and all the rest of it. No, it's going to give you that dopamine hit for a second when you spend it and then you're on to the next thing. That I wish I'd kind of separated out. Um, You know, no one's saying don't buy that cup of coffee, but maybe think that second cup, actually, if I do this other thing, that could mean that I could go to the Maldives when I'm 60. That's basically what could happen. You invest that two pound fifty in your twenties. That's, that's going to grow yeah. to be whatever you want it. Years. Yeah, oh, I know it's crazy. Yeah, delayed gratification. Yeah, it's a really hard one. What is financial independence for you? For me, financial independence is actually about having value in my abilities. Yeah. So when I was younger, I always had a fear that you know, if I lost my job, I, how would I, how would I eat? How would I, you know, what, what would my income be? I run my own business now. And although that was scary to start with, I now have real worth in what I do and I value myself. And I know that 
in effect, I eat what I kill. If I don't work, I'm not going to earn. But I also know I have earning ability. And I think for me, my entrepreneurship is, is actually what my financial independence is. It's not really a, a, an amount or a goal. Financial, yeah. I just know that whatever happens, my my mum was a refugee from Uganda after the after the Idi Amin coup in the 70s. And they had a lot of money and wealth in Africa and they lost it overnight. And that was something that she always kind of instilled in me that you will always be financially independent if you have your hard working and you have the drive to earn money. Yeah. You know, if you're happy to get your hands dirty, work hard. And that for me is the independence that I value myself enough now to know that no, no matter what happens, I can earn, earn to survive. Yeah. Thank you, Bev. And just to finish on a lighter note, what are the things you spend the most money on? Not shoes and handbags anymore. <laughs> so cliched. I think the one thing that I've learned over the years is, is the experiences that you have, the, the memories you can build. So I think as much as my husband will probably say Amazon, um, I, I think it's ensuring that I have those small bits in life that do give me pleasure, like, you know, having the nice food or... I am going to have a glass of wine. It's a nice glass of wine. Or so I, I think it's this little luxury. It's probably the, those are the things I spend money on now than yeah. any anything that's just to fill my house full of stuff. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bev. It was great to have you today on the on the wallet. Where can we find you? So City Hive website, cityhive.co.uk. Yes, cityhive.com social media also. Yes, I am at The Diverse Girl on Twitter, and then I'm on LinkedIn as well. Anyone can sign up to be a member of City Hive. It's free. It's generally aimed at people who are interested in careers in the city or who, or who already work within the ecosystem. However, we have a job board because we're trying to attract more people to the industry. It's fairly fledgling, but we will also soon be launching our Instagram, oh God, Instagram and various other social media to attract external people to our industry, to our job board. But yeah, anyone can sign up on our on our website. Amazing. So definitely check City Hive and uh, and Beva, I'll post a few, you know, links and resources. So if there's anything else you'd Thank like to you. share with us, just let me know. And I hope to, you know, see you soon at an we'll industry event, glass of wine, coffee, lunch, I mean, whatever you want. <laughs> let's do both. <laughs> let's do both. Everything. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Bev. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a couple of seconds to rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget to join our community on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe to our newsletter on vespot.com. Feel free to email me with your comments and questions over at emily at vespot.com. Thank you. Speak to you soon.